0: A start on demand.
1: on demand
0: It was a hairy morning full of school cancellations that had us asking the question should there be given what we've learned over the last 20 months, should there be some sort of remote learning on days where school gets canceled? Mayor Brian Bowman joined us to discuss the North End Water Pollution Control Center because the next phase of upgrades can't happen unless the city and province strike a funding deal. Trouble sleeping? How to reset your sleep schedule? Diana McMillan joined us from the University of Manitoba. And have you ever had an experience that made you declare, never again? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, November 18th podcast for the start. Kling, McGarry and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And we can open by telling you that due to the weather and road conditions, all schools closed in the Lord Selkirk School Division. So no buses running, staff not expected to report to their place of work. Loren, I know I saw you on the Twitters yesterday. You were out and about and experiencing firsthand the uh, road conditions and how they were not good.
2: No, they really weren't. And of course, we knew it was windy yesterday. We talked about that throughout much of the morning, but it really was causing a lot of blowing snow, particularly outside city limits. And so 75 was closed around, I was on there around one, two o'clock yesterday, and it was near whiteout conditions before I got home. And then it closed around 5.30 p.m. And I'm just, I'm looking at the Manitoba 5... 1-1 one, one, the highway map this morning and, and 75 is still closed at the moment although I wonder if that might change you know in the hour or so ahead but lots of snow-covered roads and inside city limits too Greg it's just a really slippery situation Joe said he had a two and a half hour crawl to Portage this morning Highway 1 down to snowpack and ice 30 to 40 kilometers per hour decent around Portage but the Trans-Canada, for him, was a pretty rough commute this morning. How was yours?
1: Mine was okay, as is sort of the usual prescription. Once you get out of either your back lane or your front street and onto one of those Category 2 uh, roads or onto the major thoroughfares, pretty good. They've been out sanding and salting, it looks like, as uh, Chief Peguis Trail, Henderson Highway, Main Street. They were all sort of wet this morning, so that's usually indicative of some sanding-salting operations going on. I saw at least one truck out and about this morning so uh city crews are out there but obviously based on joe's text message uh, things are pretty slow west of the city on highway one and with 75 still closed brett uh, we are going to have our issues at least for the first little while this morning uh, with the highways and uh, the wind is not going to be our friend again today by the looks of things
0: so we'll get an update on the weather with globals kayla Evans in our next segment. Also today, much to discuss as it pertains, Loren, to the vaccine plan. Five to 11-year-olds are ready to go.
2: Yeah, well, as soon as the approval comes from Health Canada, Manitoba said yesterday it'd be ready to hopefully roll out that vaccine to five to 11-year-olds for, you know, the week following. So say that approval comes today, you know, maybe by next week. If it comes next week, the following week, they're trying to get things going and they've got a wide range of plans, you know, in places you might be able to get it done. They they talked about having access to it in schools, walk-in clinics, uh, sorry, not walk-in clinics, the the pop-up clinics like they've been doing for much of the year, different issues, uh, of course, you're going to present in different communities based on how some people feel about it. And so they might have their work cut out for them in certain regions. But I listened to that whole news conference yesterday, or as much as I could, at least a good 40 minutes of it, uh, most of it led by Dr. Joss Reimer, because that's my kid's category now, right? That's where I'm of interest. And uh, I was reassured by so many things that she had to say, man, just as a side note, uh, I think she should run for all the leadership positions of the world.
1: (laughs) Expand on that, because I, I mentioned to you this morning, I find Dr. Reimer's demeanor, her presentation style, so soothing, so reassuring. Am I on the... Are we on the same page there? Yeah, I just in?
2: think I just think the delivery is good. It really sounds to me like she's read so much of the information over and over again because it's so top of mind for her. It's not like they're you're reading notes and yes, this is her expertise, so she should know it well, but so much is changing when it comes to vaccines daily, hourly. You know, there's all sorts of different conversations taking place around the world and I really just the way she speaks makes me really believe that the data has been digested fully. By her, and more than that, you know, she's she feel. I feel like she's unflappable. I think that was one of your words too, Greg. That 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 you can throw a question at her, and it's not that she has the answer ready, but if she doesn't have it ready, she says honestly, "Yeah, that's a good question. We'll look into that." Or, "I don't have that data right now. I'll look into it." And so, I just very much appreciate that kind of approach.
1: Yeah, and it seems like as though Brett, they're ready to hit the ground running when this. I think is just really. I don't think I'm overstepping things. It's really just a matter of time before Health Canada right. approves this vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds.
0: So we'll have more on this coming up at 6.37. And then at 6.45, we want to talk about the experiences that have made you say never again. Because there are some, some people in Winnipeg right now who could have said never again as it pertains to the city of Winnipeg. But uh, they've gone the other direction, Loren.
2: They could have said never never again. That's a good point. So we've been talking over the past uh, couple, I guess guess it's a week. It started over the last few days. We've been hearing about this film crew that's in Winnipeg, and they had uh, a lot of their items stolen from them. They had a trailer, um, basically they're here to film a movie about a heist, and they've said that the director that's not lost on them that they were talking about a fictional story about something being stolen and then it turns out they had their trailer and some of its uh contents taken from them while they were here filming those have been returned and the news spoke with uh Stu Slo- stone yesterday and you know it sounds like they're um still okay with winnipeg that they're not going to hold it against this city and that they came here to film this Film And the show will go on in Stu's words. So we thought that was pretty great that they aren't, um, for now at least, having any hate on for us. But we know lots of us might be different. If you go to any city and you have a bad experience, you might never want to go there again. Or you go to any business establishment and you have one bad experience, you might not want to go there again. So I think it's uh, kudos to those guys. But our conversation is going to be about that, Brett.
1: The never again GMAC. Yeah, the never again, the I shall never return to that establishment, that community, uh, based on the experience. What I was really impressed with yesterday, if we can wrap up the conversation about the the stolen film equipment, not only that they got it back, well, they got it back, I I guess, doesn't necessarily matter, but the fact that they came on CJOB yesterday and said, if anything, this has been overall a positive experience for us. I'm like, dude... Where do you sell these uh, half-full glasses (laughs) (laughs) that you're looking at the world through? Because I I, I need more of that, too. If all goes according to plan, kids between 5 and 11 will be rolling up their sleeves before Christmas. Health Canada is expected. To approve the COVID-19 vaccine for children in the very near future. And the province already has its rollout plan in place. Here's Global's Joe Scarpelli with the details.
3: The province is expecting Health Canada to approve the COVID-19 vaccine for kids age 5 to 11 by the end of November. The shots will take about a week to get here, bringing the likely rollout to early December. That date may just be around the corner, but you can't make appointments just yet, although the province is reserving spots in anticipation. Provincial polling was done and suggests 75% of Manitoba parents are ready to have their kids vaccinated.
4: It showed that parents who are vaccinated will most likely ensure their children get immunized too. Considering that 85% of Manitoba's adult population is vaccinated, the survey suggests that a high percentage of child immunizations is likely. This is really, really good news.
3: Kids will be able to get a QR code just like anyone else, but so far there are no plans to make them use it although the province says it's possible that could change. The vaccine for kids from Pfizer will come with a lower dosage than the one for adults. The province says they'll be able to get vaxxed at school, doctor's offices, pharmacies, regional clinics, and clinics on First Nations. They're hoping to make it as accessible as possible.
5: While it is true that most children who do get COVID-19 will have mild or sometimes even no symptoms, some children uh, are more vulnerable. Some children uh, have to undergo treatment in the hospital or even
2: the ICU.
3: Officials aren't planning to immediately loosen mask mandates or any other COVID-related rules in schools once the vaccine arrives. However, the province is promising kids a special sticker. Joe Scarpelli, Global News.
2: Hey, I liked my special sticker, so why wouldn't they? Uh, Just for some numbers for, for folks listening in, there are about 125,000 kids in this 5 to 11 category in Manitoba. And so as the government gets ready to vaccinate this age group, they put out some other data on just how COVID has impacted 5 to 11 years, year olds. So, so far in this pandemic, There have been more than 6,000 COVID-19 cases in children in this province. 27 of those kids actually had to be hospitalized and seven of them needed critical care. And early on, we did learn that one child had died from the virus since the start of this pandemic. And so they wanted to also throw those numbers out just for uh, food for thought for folks who might be considering. I had said this is my kids category. The only question I had was about my oldest, who sort of straddles the almost eleven into the twelve-year-old, and she answered that yesterday by saying, "Get the first vaccine available to you." So, if that's, I guess, in the coming weeks, the five to eleven-year-old, that's what we'll do.
1: Have you guys had the impression that, that that we overall believe that kids don't get this as often as adults COVID nineteen? Because I'm looking at these numbers. If there have been 125,000 Manitoba kids, uh, you know, if there are. 125,000 kids, uh, five to 11, and we've had over 6,000 cases, that's roughly 10% of the population at 125,000, 1.25 million. It's a little bit under, but if there's been 6,000 COVID-19 cases in children, that's about 10% of the total of just under 65,000. So, like, the the numbers are quite proportionate there with regards to children versus the rest of the population. I had a discussion with somebody the other day who was emphatic that this doesn't, kids don't get it as often as everybody else. Am I missing something?
2: I think it was more about, I I, I, I was always under the impression it was more about the severity of it. Like, yeah, I agree with that. They would, they would be getting it less. So, but your numbers, I I hear what you're saying with the amount of kids that are getting it. It was the hospitalizations that I think that a lot of people were more focused on and who, which part of the population in the beginning was going to see the greatest impacts in terms of having to go to hospital. And of course, that was the seniors at the start. And so, yeah, I, I, but, but I hear what you're saying. And I, and I do want to hear from parents in terms of what they need to hear if they're not sure they want to get their kids vaccinated, because I'm not so sure the idea that parents who are vaccinated will translate into their kids getting vaccinated. I think there's a whole other host of questions parents go through when they're when they're doing something for their children as opposed to for themselves. And so I don't know if a you know 1 plus 1 always makes 2 here.
0: We want to talk about how you can get Smackdown tickets January 21st. This has to do with the movie crew. They're shooting a heist movie in Winnipeg and their stuff gets heisted. A truck and a trailer was stolen was it the trailer that was found but the truck is go- still in the wind
1: Yeah the yes. truck is still missing it's still out there you know the 93 Chevy silver I you know yeah so, so they got ke- the trailer and uh, I think if most I'm not of the content, m- most if not all of it yeah, yeah. are uh, are recovered or they're gone Recovered okay okay um,
0: but they so they came on CJOB yesterday and and they they said you know what we're we're okay with Winnipeg right Loren?
2: Yeah, basically, he said, like, no hard feelings. The show must go on. They're going to carry on. And I think they actually, he said something to, along the lines, Greg, of um, just feeling that, uh, you know, all in all, it's turned out okay. It's stolen and returned, basically. So yeah.
1: At the end of the day, it's been a positive experience, believe it or not, because of the interaction they've had, not only with police, but uh, everyday Manitobans. It's it's just absolutely bizarre.
0: So that got us thinking, well, they could have said, never again will we come to Winnipeg. Um we're lucky they went, or happy they went there, the positive route, but we wanted to know if you've had a never again experience with a either a place, maybe a city, could be a sp- uh, a spot, and we don't, if it's a specific spot, we don't want to throw anyone under the bus here. We don't need to name anyone. Um, or maybe it was the, the the reverse where it could have been a never again experience, but they somebody stepped up to make sure that that did not happen. So let's go around the horn here, Cameron
1: Poitras. Well, I used to, I used to keep a list by in a drawer by the TV <laughs> where if I hated your commercial, I would write it on this list and no. I would activate a vendetta against that product. <laughs> activate this a is a hunt. This is 100% true. I don't know where this list is. I don't even remember who was on it, but I had a list of of products that I would never buy or companies that ever, because I hated their commercial. Um, in terms of now, I like I've inherited a vast series of vendettas against uh, local restaurants and businesses associated with my wife and her family. Uh, so I, I, I have to carry a lot of those uh, with me now. But, uh, yeah, I've I've lived vendettas for as long as I've been alive. Fatwa. Fatwas, <laughs> yes.
0: Oh, that is gold. Uh, activate a vendetta. I love that. I've never heard it put that way. Um Forte, what about you? You're a, a super positive guy, but hey. I know, Okay, Well, actually, I'm going to come at this at a
2: different angle. Never again will I work in retail. Being behind a cash register, some of the customers are just mean and evil. There's this one woman. I was working at this toy store, a big retail store, and she comes up. And you, could, you could tell she was already mad. She was the soccer mom-looking woman coming at me. She <laughs> Classic had, Karen. Oh, yeah. She had this vein coming out of her head, and she was just going... <laughs> Just going off on me. she was yelling at me about there's too much stuff on the counter, there's too many toys or candy or this and that look like, I, I have nothing to do with that. you know I just ring up your stuff like, why are you yelling at me? Or else I worked in a beer vendor, and this one guy comes in, I just up the floor It's the very end of the night and he comes in you know he's like, "Oh, you know, I could slip on this," and he starts
3: messing up my floor and he's like, "I could sue you, I could sue you." <laughs> so never
1: again, never well, I did. work. In retail.
0: Fair enough, Forte, and that's a valid reason
1: as to why. Greg Mackling, what about you? Well, I, <laughs> I boycotted a very popular burger place um, in uh, the Corden Village area for a decade because um, they wouldn't put my chili on the side. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. <laughs> so it I was at a time when I was just learning to enjoy the, the variety of chilies on your burger, mm-hmm. and, but I don't like the kidney beans. And so as opposed to asking, what do you put in your chili? I would start just ask, hey, can I have the chili on the side? Well, this one particular burger establishment wanted nothing to do with the concept of putting my chili on the side. I said, may I ask why? You're gonna get too much. I said, I'm not asking for you to fill a container with chili, just however much you would put on my burger, just put it in a container instead. There was no reasoning with the individual who owned the shop at the particular time. I said, are are you serious right now? You you won't do this for me? No chance, no way, no how. So I left. I've shared that story with many of my friends, and I think there was about a half a dozen of us in the uh, boycott <coughs> burger spot for uh, at least a decade, and then it changed hands, so now I'm able to go there again.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and as it
1: turned out, I like their chili just fine. <laughs> and, Lorraine, what about you?
2: I honestly, like, I don't, I'm not a person, I'd like to be a person that holds on to the grudge, but I get tired of it but i will say and i have no problem naming this establishment because i've said it on air before i will never ever i will spit on this establishment if i Ooh. walk by it dick's last resort that oh, yeah. restaurant where they insult <laughs> oh. you i brought this up a couple of weeks ago and i just i i didn't know going in that this is what they do that the, the servers on purpose are obnoxious and rude and it's supposed to be a fun experience i hated it from start to finish and i will never ever ever go there again
0: Fair enough. So here's what we need from you. 204-780-6868. Have you gone to a place and you'll never go back? And if it's a specific Winnipeg business, we're not going to be naming any businesses. So just try to keep it sort of a general sense. Uh, Maybe it's a uh, city. Maybe it was an experience. Like for me, I've talked before about the last time I tried marijuana when it was legalized. Full-blown panic attack. Never again. Not trying. I don't need to go down that road again. There's no point. Thousands of Manitoba families spend hours every week at the rink. And I, I, <laughs> I know parents love this stuff. But whenever I hear about, oh, I was at the rink, I was at the rink, I was at the rink, I think. I don't know how you do it. So much respect for parents who take care of their kids and their sports. Now, in theory, it's all for the kids, but does the sport also impact the way that moms and dads behave?
2: Yeah, so that's one of the questions being asked in a new study from the University of Manitoba. And the goal in the survey that is just going out this week is to ask hockey parents questions about their connection to the game, how it might satisfy needs in their own life when kids are playing and it's also going to ask parents questions about how they might behave towards referees. Julie Brodeur is a master's student in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the U of M and the principal investigator behind this study. Good morning Julie. Good morning Lauren how are you? I'm good and I'm super curious about this because I, I am a hockey parent so I'm wondering why you decided to look into this.
4: Yeah that's that's a great question. Um... I actually started into this field, um, like you, I was a hockey parent. My kids no longer play. Um, And I remember observing behaviors of parents in the stands and just being really curious about some parents do these things and some parents do those things and kind of what's going on behind why do certain parents do certain behaviors and others don't. Um, And so in this way, I started looking at okay, so what is it about these parents that are creating these behaviors or maybe a factor in creating some of these behaviors? And so together with my advisor, uh, Ben Schellenberg at the U of M, we are looking at these behaviors, like you mentioned, through needs and also through passions. So it's it's becoming – what we're trying to find out is if certain parents are scoring – scoring isn't maybe the right word, but if certain parents are tending to show maybe a more obsessive type passion for being a hockey parent, are they more apt to be yelling at referees?
1: Well, that's a great question. I was a referee a long, long time ago, Julie, and my kids don't play hockey. And I hate to say this part, it was partially a conscientious decision on our part because we've heard the terminology, the culture of hockey. And sometimes we hear the word broken in connection with that term. Uh, Is that part of this as well, like the overall culture, some of the things that happen away from the ice, things that happen in the parking lot, things that happen on the drive home with the kids and parents? How deep are you going with this?
4: Yeah, for sure. Like, those are all factors in it. Um, This study is really just kind of looking at the passion that parents have for it and whether it's connected to if they will exhibit some of these other behaviors. But I Mm -hmm. do know there are other... You mentioned the drive home. Actually, one of my other uh, members on my committee, she's out of the U of T, uh, Catherine Tamman, and she does work, and she looks at the ride home. Is actually one of her studies is what it's called, and it looks at what happens in the car on the ride home. Um, And as far as culture, I mean, lots of different researchers uh, look at culture. Uh, Jay Johnson at the University of Manitoba, he also looks at hockey culture. So, yeah. My study, no, it's not so much about the overarching look at culture, but more about one kind of specific aspect of it.
0: Were any other sports considered?
4: Uh, You know what? No. At this point, no. However, one of the big drivers for why we are looking at this is, in 2019, Sport Manitoba started a campaign called No Rest, No Game. Maybe some of your listeners have seen it on social media. And that stemmed out of their... their, conference with officials about sports are having trouble attracting and retaining officials and in particular hockey and soccer were having trouble retaining other sports were having trouble attracting um, so it was really about okay let's look at where they're having trouble retaining and just for me like I said I was a hockey parent and that's kind of was sort of my comfort zone. I know nothing about soccer. So I was like, I'm not touching that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you talk about, before we let you go, Julie, just about the retention and the attraction. And I think it's worth pointing out that for a lot of these sports, referees start at a young age. You might start at 12 being a referee and then looking at the possibility that you might have a parent in the stands yelling at you when you're 12 years old is is something that needs to be considered. And so therefore how many parents are you going to be talking to? And is, is there, is the goal to have a conclusion out of this or more just information?
4: Um, Right. Yeah. So right now I'm looking for about 440, 450 participants for this. Um, And right now we're really looking for that connection between, are you obsessively passionate about this? um, And, Will you be more likely to be a referee yeller? Um, but at the other, on the other side of it, it's where does this passion come from? That's really, so the, the yelling part is about developing policy and education, about how can we change parents' behaviors? But the, the other part, the needs part, is really more of a research-driven part and that we don't really know where this passion comes from. So maybe is it that your needs aren't satisfied somewhere or they're only satisfied in this activity? So it's really two parts, one that's really of interest for researchers and one that's really, hey, this is the the hook that grabs the public's attention.
0: Julie Brodeur, a master's student in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this very much.
4: Great. Thank you. Have a nice day, everyone.
0: Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us in what's turned out to be quite a busy morning, an unexpectedly busy morning on the roads, no doubt, uh, because it turned out to be, how did you put it, Greg, a wind event?
1: A wind event, yeah, no snow really to speak of, but that wind is kicking up the snow, which is also polishing the roads, it was quite warm yesterday afternoon, so those roads are wet, and now in a lot of places they've turned to ice. All right. So,
0: in the meantime, we're it's our small town salute coming up in just a moment, and we've got keys to the game coming up at seven fifty-five. But uh, we had a conversation last half hour on hockey. who I see a text in front of us here. Who is the one who harvested this? Well, well Bre- Lorraine, Bre- you, can- you went
1: back and forth with this listener, Lorraine.
2: No, you can go ahead and read it. I was just going to reference, we were talking at 7 o'clock about this survey being done at the U of M where they're asking 400 plus parents to answer some questions about hockey behaviors, in particular how their passions might fuel how they behave in the rink and, and how they might behave towards referees. And she referenced the fact that there's a referee retention problem in hockey and uh, uh, attaining problems soccer and so they're asking hockey parents to answer some questions and a hockey parent texted in with with their thoughts greg
1: yeah i always ruffle some feathers when i suggest the culture of hockey is broken this listener uh disagrees vehemently Uh, i've been a hockey parent for 15 years and many of my best friends and our family friends are hockey families and i couldn't imagine life without those friends and support system when my son was 11 and playing double a hockey our coach said very I think it's set is what this is supposed to say. Very clear guidelines for parent behavior. And now that my son is 15 years old and playing AAA hockey and we have multiple different teams playing on, play mm, different teams I, they've, I guess, consolidated over the years, it is still those original parents that are the most well-behaved. Set the tone early and let parents know what you will not accept as behavior against referees or other parents. And I think that's a really good point.
2: Yeah, I had said to that listener that uh, I agree with that, but often coaches will... Say like, look, these are the rules, and in 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 hockey associations will then say there's cooling off periods. Do not send emails or phone mm-hmm. calls within 24 hours. Like just a good life lesson, right? Calm down, go home, don't react. And then you know, in many hockey associations, they'll have a point person. You go to that person to talk to them, and then if they feel it's necessary, they might take the complaint to an official or to a coach. But they're trying, they're trying in sport to make this happen. But the the reason behind the study is that the U of M uh, saying that they still see some behaviors and they want to figure out what's going on.
0: It is Thursday just after 7:30 Mr. Fortier what does that mean? Small town salute and our small town salute is our way to visit with communities outside the perimeter highway and learn about the quality of life experienced in these communities.
2: And we know that this weekly segment really does get many of you thinking about going, visiting some of these wonderful places. And for others, the guests will actually might be from where you lived or where you're from. And it sparks a lot of memories. And so we're going to learn about a branding company this morning, Westman, working to help capture magical images of some of Manitoba's truly special places.
1: Tom Wayman is sales and operations manager at Weber Printing in the Wheat City. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. So we can't wait to find out what gems of the prairies you're celebrating with your latest calendars. But first, tell us about Weiming Zhao. Well, Weiming
6: is uh, originally from uh, northwest China. He came to Brandon about 31 years ago, uh, fell in love with the city. And in November of 2003, he decided to start painting daily. And he was inspired by the community. He, uh, he uses a, a style called uh, plein air painting, which means basically from start to finish, you have a, a painting that you uh, you complete on site and uh, usually takes no more than two hours. Uh, he's basically committed to doing a painting a day and has amassed over 6,000 paintings of rural Manitoba and uh, they're just absolutely amazing. Um, and, uh, and the people are just so thrilled now that they can, they can have a piece of his work. Not If they maybe can't afford an, a, an original, they can, uh, they can afford a calendar or, uh, or one of his other items that we'll be talking about.
2: I've seen him in Clear, Clear Lake, Tom, at different locations, just standing there painting the canoes or the lakes or the wishing well. It's just such a wonderful thing that he's doing. Uh, and last year we spoke to you about the branding calendar from Waving. I understand there's more options this year?
6: Well, yeah, you saw him. Uh, you saw him painting out at Wasagaming. He, uh, I think, he spent almost every weekend out there. He just loves it, and uh, and maybe he loves it because uh, when he starts a painting, if someone sees him, he usually sells a painting before it's even finished. <laughs> um, but he did uh, he did a number of, uh, of paintings. And after the Brandon calendar, he he said he really wanted to do a Wasagaming calendar. So we uh, we produced the Wasagaming calendar for 2022 that we launched on May long weekend, um, out at, uh, out at Clear Lake. And he made a couple of appearance to do signings there and the, the sale of it was just absolutely tremendous and, uh, they are still available. And, um, then added to that, he, um, uh, he decided that, um, well, the Brandon calendar, when I was on last year with you folks, um, uh, we had just an amazing amount of uh, people call from Winnipeg asking about the calendar. And so he said, well, why don't I paint a calendar, paint images for Winnipeg, and we can do a Winnipeg calendar in 2022. So that one is just about ready to launch now. It'll be ready within the next couple of weeks, but it's got some amazing. He spent, I think, about two weeks in Winnipeg uh, just painting a number of uh, a number of sites, the Parliament Buildings, uh, the Forks, Assiniboine Park, um, it's uh, it's just a beautiful calendar. And then also he said uh, he wanted to paint some of the rural areas. So he painted a calendar for Suris and then also a calendar of Nipua. And then we'll have a 2022 calendar for Brandon. And uh, I should add to that also, um, he has accompanied each of the calendars with the option of... Uh, purchasing an art print, which is a a small six by nine individual print of one of the scenes from the calendar. And also, um, we're doing greeting cards this year as well from each of those communities as well.
0: We haven't asked you yet about what it is you love about living in Westman, Tom.
6: Oh man. Um, Westman, you know, has all the amenities of a big city, um, without having to drive 20 minutes from one end of the city to the other. And I mean, we're so close to clear Lake and the peace gardens and, uh, I like to say you don't have to drive, you know, an hour to get outside to look at the northern lights that we've seen so much of this fall. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful place. We, we love it. I've been here since 1980. I grew up in Nipah. Previous to that, I was in Bozeman, Manitoba. So to this, this is a big city for me.
1: All right, before I let you go, Tom, how do we get our hands on these masterpieces?
6: Uh, we can, uh, uh, they're available on our, our website uh, through our um, through our online store. Uh, they are, it's just at weberprinting.com, and uh, you can go on and purchase them. Now, we are going to have uh, a local pickup in Winnipeg. Um, we're just working through the details. So uh, once you purchase it online, you can actually pick it up in Winnipeg, which does save on the postage. You just go to weberprinting.com and uh, follow the link to the Weber store and all of the images will be on there within the next couple of weeks. Currently, it's just the Brandon, uh, the West Seigemann calendar. All the other ones will be on within the next couple of weeks.
0: Tom Wayman, Sales and Operations Manager at Weber Printing in the Wheat City, joining us live for the Small Town Salute. Tom, thank you very much for this. Thank you. You know, with the cancellations, that means snow day, no school day, but... um, you guys are kind of wondering, is it time to be the no fun, the fun <laughs> bandits,
2: so to speak? I, I'm hoping my kids aren't listening, Brett, because they're going to be very upset with me to hear me say this, but I'm just throwing this out there. Okay. So you listed off, what, 10 schools in the DSFM yeah. and then another seven school divisions we've been talking about. So like, there's thousands of kids not going to school today, mostly outside Winnipeg for the most part. And I'm just wondering with all we've learned with remote learning <laughs> is there a hybrid situation we can <laughs> come up with, Greg? I, I, listen, I, I get it. Kids get, deserve to get a day. Teachers can't go into work. We can't expect them to drive on these roads either. That's not what I'm saying. But is there a way, given all the tools we've come up with in the past year and a half, to to do something with these snow days? Because in the last week alone, like winter's been here a week, basically, since our first snowfall. A week ago yesterday, a week ago today. And some school divisions have canceled two, three, even four times, depending on how the roads have been. So that's that's a lot already. And I'm just wondering, Greg, what we could do with that. And now s- I'm throwing it over to you to be more clear with what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I don't think you could be more clear. You just
1: don't want to get in trouble uh, with your kids. And I have zero issues saying my kids are older. And if they were going to be missing school, I would hope that their teachers would send a reading list, a homework list, something that they could work on uh, with Zoom and Teams, all the different programs that are available to have a quick conference call or a video conference call with all the students in the class to give them some guidance to say, hey, uh, we are coming up uh, for high school students. You might be coming up on exams or midterms, uh, different projects that you might be working on, and keep kids on track because, let's face it, if they don't have somebody sort of looking over them, they're bound to be doing anything on a day like today, and I think that is should be one of the lessons that's co- come out of this pandemic. Just like uh, I wasn't here, but I know Friday was kind of a hairy on the roads in the city of Winnipeg, I can't imagine that there weren't some people that could have stayed home on Friday and worked from home. We just don't seem to have a, a real clear and concise policy about what snow days, quote unquote, look like in this part of the world. And it still baffles my mind.
0: I can tell you here at 201 Portage, there were a lot of people who stayed home because when I go downstairs and come back up, usually at around 830, that's the the most hectic Portion of the morning and there was nobody good so most people i think were able to figure out how to stay nice. home um so feel free to weigh in what do you think of this should we I'm, take away I'm, snow days?
2: Kill. <laughs> I know. I totally know. And snow days are fun, and everyone deserves a break. And I'm not suggesting it would have to be a full day of learning like it was, you know, when schools went to remote learning. I just mean maybe a note can go out and say, here's an assignment you can do. remember that math thing I gave you yesterday? You still need to finish it today. Or I expect you to have it 80% complete if you're coming back tomorrow. You know, just a couple things like that. That's all because. You know, we have to learn to live with these snow days. We have been for decades, but now that we have more technology, I am just, I am just, I am just throwing this just ball saying. out there. Just
1: saying.
0: With everything we've learned about technology over the last twenty months, when schools have to close because of the weather, should there be some sort of remote learning, Loren, What are we getting on the text line?
2: While well, some feedback from listeners saying, yeah, good idea, others are suggesting that technology doesn't always work, particularly in rural areas where high-speed internet just doesn't really exist. And I, this text from a listener was thought-provoking. If there's one thing I've learned from the pandemic, they write, it's that technology has us moving too fast. There was a time when I would have agreed that a snow day should have some direction, but now I think it's a great opportunity to have a wellness day.
0: Thoughtful feedback indeed. Thank you very much for that. And you can continue to weigh in at 204-780-6868. But right now we want to ask you the question, after
1: you turn off the tap, after you flush the toilet, where does it all go? Mm, It's the stuff many of us perhaps don't really think about, Brad, or even want to think about, but it all has to go somewhere. And in Winnipeg, the somewhere is three sewage plants, and sometimes it's the Red River Right now, one of those plants, the North End Water Pollution Control Center, is in the midst of millions of dollars worth of upgrades. But the next phase of those upgrades can't happen, Loren, unless the city and province strike a funding deal.
2: Yeah, and there's a bit of a dispute over what that deal should look like when it comes to construction. constructing this biosolids facility. It's worth $552 million, and if Winnipeg doesn't expand this facility, basically we could run out of room. There was a report delivered yesterday to City Hall that estimated capacity at five to nine years and suggested even if construction started like right now, it would take much of that time just to get this plant up and running so time is of the essence mayor brian bowman is of course our guest this morning how are you doing mr mayor
7: i'm good thanks how are you guys doing
2: we're good and this is a complicated one so i'm trying to get at the heart of what's going on here you know what does the what's the province asking for when it comes to how they want this to be built and run and and what are what's the city looking for
7: yeah so uh, I, i i thought your summary was actually really good um you know, the city of Winnipeg has split the project into three parts because uh, we we quite frankly couldn't wait, and we got going on phase one. Your your summary was with respect to phase two uh, of the upgrades. Uh, our public service has has made it uh, public for for some time. In addition to reminding everybody this month that we have approximately five to nine years of capacity left, and so. Your right time is of the essence. Economic development, environment, environmental sustainability are relying upon us to do our part as governments to get the upgrades made. The city of Winnipeg um, had to go through the province to request access to federal funding as well as provincial. We made that request in 2019, and um, I'm optimistic. Uh, you know, this happened. The delays that we've seen to date have been under a, a different premier. Uh, we have a new premier that has struck a much more collaborative tone. And um, what the provincial government had requested of us in, since we've made the, um, the application in 2019, earlier this year, they asked us to do a market sounding on P3 options. We've conducted that. That's been provided to the province. And so uh, what we voted on yesterday was to call on the province of Manitoba to immediately forward our application to the federal government for for funding and we're hopeful that under a new premier there'll be a new approach and we'll uh, we'll see some movement on something that's been stalled at the legislature for about 2 years.
1: Mayor Bowman, it's our understanding that you're okay with the P3 concept for a majority of the project but the province are they insisting asking with regards to running this system once it's completed and built, are they insisting that it be a private company do that?
7: Well, and that, that's that's at the crux of, of the issue right now. Um, you know, we have demonstrated, and we've actually benefited from P3s in the past. The second phase of rapid transit was a, a P3 model. We saw some, some pretty great savings for taxpayers. Uh, there's numerous successful examples of P3s, and so... The city of Winnipeg is, is, is going to be pragmatic. If, in fact, they, uh, uh, they dig in and they say, no, this is, this is the path we're going, then, uh, you know, obviously they can make that be known. They've asked us to do a market sounding on P3s. We've done that, and uh, we just are anxious to, to get going on it. But you're right. Earlier there had been discussions about full privatization, of including operating and maintaining. Uh, that was not something... That uh, we did a market sounding of. We we are looking at other P three models for their consideration, and hopefully they'll they'll be good with it, and we can get going.
0: Is there a deadline that you've got to hit? Yeah, there's uh, there's
7: definitely a, a federal some federal deadlines that we're trying to 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 meet, and um, you know for the end of this year, and, and that's something that um, you know we've known about for some time. The province has known about for some time. Um, and you know, I'm, I, am i reasonably optimistic. The fact that we've got a new premier, who's only been in office for a couple of weeks, uh, that we'll see some, some rapid movement on a file that's been stalled under the, the former premier for a couple of years. And so there's an opportunity and I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to be doing our best to, uh, to make sure that we're demonstrating to our residents that uh, we can deliver results for them on something that's really important to Manitoba.
2: Just to that point, and unfortunately, we just have about 30 seconds here, Mr. Mayor. But if it's time is of the essence and this project has been stalled for so long, you know, can we can we not just get in a room together and hammer this out instead of emails going back and forth? Like, if if it's so crucial that this happens sooner rather than later, how do we speed up that dialogue?
7: Yeah, the the request is out for a formal meeting, exactly on that, uh, Lorraine. So um, I'm I'm looking forward to when I can sit down with the Premier and we can we can have a a more uh, a more Candid discussion than we can through the media, and so um, you know, hopefully, we'll we'll get that meeting soon, and and we can go from there.
1: What's the deadline, Mayor Bowman? What's the date?
7: the uh, The federal government for one one of their uh, their funding streams is the end of this year, and so um, you know, if we're going to access that, we 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 need that application forwarded from the provincial government to uh, to Ottawa, and of course, uh, we made that request in 2019. So we're we're just calling on the province to to forward that application as submitted now that we've done the market sounding they've got some information that they had requested Uh, let's go let's get going on this and demonstrate to our residents that we can deliver results by working together
0: you often hear me joking about how I nod off on my couch all the time usually in a seated position And then I wake up at weird hours, especially on the weekend. Like, you know, it's kind of funny, but uh, I've noticed over the last three weeks or so since my golf season ended without that structure on the weekend, i.e. I have to get to bed because I have to get up in the morning. My sleep schedule and structure has just become this unmitigated disaster. You know, like I'm a single guy. I got no kids. I got no pets. I have no one to whom I am accountable on the weekend. So I nod off on the couch in the evening. I wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning. Sometimes I stay up till five, six, seven. Then I go back to bed for a couple hours. And even during the week, it's getting bad to the point where I'm essentially always a zombie. And... I've noticed that I've gained a bit of weight, and I suspect my sleep pattern is not helping in that respect. Loren, I need help.
2: Yeah. The reason why we're talking about this this morning is that we were exchanging some of these thoughts over text this week about how we're just really, really all feeling tired these days. And, of course, we all go through, I think, in life different waves of this, you know, where you might be busier. now than you were maybe a month ago or you have different stressors in your life but i used to be a person that aimed for a solid seven hours of sleep and then that changed to six and then then it changed to five and now if i hit four and i mean like four in a row and then i'm kind of tossing and turning for a couple more that's like the new low or high i guess that's the new benchmark for me greg and it's not sustainable
1: well tonight the jets play at nine o'clock here's a perfect example (laughs) because it's thursday in Greg's mind, you know what? If I stay up and watch a game, as long as it's ended by eleven thirty, eleven forty-five, I can I can sneak in three three and a half hours of sleep. Tomorrow's Friday, I will be okay. I don't think that's very healthy. I thought it was eight o'clock tonight. Uh, Pre-game's uh, at six. Oh, thank goodness, it's eight. Yeah. Oh, good. There <laughs> we go. I can get four and a half hours sleep. <laughs> Well, we have questions about sleep. We have a great friend in Diana McMillan. I guess it's 9 o'clock tomorrow night in Vancouver. An associate professor at the University of Manitoba. She specializes in sleep. She's a good friend of our program, and she always answers our questions. So, Diana, how unwise a decision would it be to stay up until 11.30 tonight or maybe 11 and get up at 3.30 tomorrow morning?
8: ooh, dear, better put it on the
1: PBR. Yeah, you know? I, I know so, you're correct, uh, but.
8: <laughs> it, it's, you know, uh, sleep really is one of those things that we often push um, push around, right? And we it, it falls down in our priority list. And really, it really needs to be up there uh, as one of the top priorities because it affects so much of how the rest of our day or the following day is going to go. And so we know that not only are we tired, but we don't think as well. We've got some cognitive impairments that happen and so our decision making starts to be pretty poor um, we're actually more clumsy so we we see significant motor impairments so we're you know whether you're an adult or a, a child you're more likely to stumble maybe break a break an arm or or uh, slip on the ice um, we see you know uh, cardiovascular disturbances our blood pressure is uh, up a bit and definitely mood we've all experienced that where we're you know maybe more irritable but often more anxious and we can be more um depressed and and down and uh, it also affects our hormones so we don't have um the same growth hormone which not only is important for growing but actually we need that on a daily basis and it's only secreted during sleep or almost exclusively during sleep and that is what helps to repair uh, and the tissues that we are injuring on a daily basis not just if you're having surgery of course but you know if you're just the rough and tumble of every day um, as well as our uh, regulation of our blood sugar so we're much more like a type 2 diabetic when we're sleep deprived we're not regulating that blood sugar either so Lots of things, um, immune changes as well. More prone to getting whatever flu is going around, and we certainly don't want to catch anything these days. So, lots of reasons why um, we need our sleep. Um, but there's a lot of reasons why you know adults don't get the recommended seven to nine hours of sleep a day either.
0: If our sleep schedule has taken a nosedive like mine, is there a way to hit? a reset button so I can get back to sleeping like a normal human adult?
8: Yes, actually. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's some really good suggestions that can help you to sort of reestablish that good Um, routine and some healthier sleep patterns so first of all try it sounded like you know the golf game was a really good way to sort of entrain you to sort of get to bed at a a reasonable time well I think what you need to do is sort of look at your schedule and and make a plan and, and try to Stick to it uh, as closely as possible to have a set schedule and routine for your um, wake time and your gear down time and your bedtime, All right, So your body will fall into a pattern and it will become sleepier at that same time. And you'll find that you don't I mean, maybe you need to use an alarm clock, but but you'll find that you waken at that same time as well. So that regular uh, sleep and, and bedtime um, and wake time is really important. Regular daylight exposure, and, and I, this is maybe something that Lauren was commenting about having. You know, it's uh, where the time of the year where we've got the least amount of, of daylight. And good news, twenty second of December, you know, almost just a you know short month away, it starts to get brighter. So I was hold that, hold that out. <laughs> you know, it's around the corner. Um, but trying to get some daylight exposure, even if it's a short walk during a, a break at work, um, or sitting by the window if you're, you know, if you're not able to get outside on the icy roads, or or sidewalks or things like that. um, That will help you as well. Um, Staying active. um, And so even if you're maybe not able to do golf these days, what is it that you enjoy um, that you can do um, that, you know, whether it's yoga or weights or whether you can um, find some other, you know, workout at a gym or mall walk or whatever, um, that regular exercise can help reduce the stress but also help to make you pleasantly tired in a good way, not the stress tired, but the sort of delightful uh, exercise tired. Um, And so that can be helpful. Um, Limiting the screen time, especially uh, things that are emitting blue light. So your tablets, cell phones, um, try to keep them out of your bedroom and the TV as well. Um, Try not to fall asleep with the television. So, um, you know, if there's something you really want to watch, but it's not in your schedule time, Maybe tape tape it if you can. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, you, you, you really don't want to have that light exposure, which is going to suppress your melatonin. And melatonin, as most of you probably remember, is that nice endogenous hormone that makes us feel sleepy. Um, so we fall asleep and it helps us to stay asleep into those early uh, nighttime hours. So um, there's a few things like that as well as uh, trying to watch what you eat and drink. So limiting the amount of caffeine and also uh, the amount of alcohol because alcohol is a sleep disturber. It really um, disrupts our REM sleep. And it also makes us uh, get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom. Right. It's a diuretic. And so um, we you know, we have to make more trips to the bathroom than, they, than we ordinarily would, right? So there's a, there's a few things in that regard as well. And if you have, um, you know, if you if try to integrate exercise and you, you find it's a challenge, you know, one of the things that might work is set a 20-minute timer. Everybody can do some kind of exercise for 20 minutes. And if you didn't have a good day one day, don't feel like it is your destiny. You know, minor setback, learn from it, keep going and build on those successes. And you can, you know, kind of gradually get yourself back into a much better uh, habits. And then suddenly it, it's not uh, a forced habit. It's just a regular pattern of really good health.
2: I've basically run out of room on my list of things that I'm writing down here, Diana, that I'm doing wrong. So thank you, I guess. But uh, if, if we can, I want to ask you a question about when in my sleep cycle am I getting the perfect sleep, that deep sleep, Like what I should be targeting for in terms of time. But perhaps we can take a break, Brett, and come back with that question in about three minutes.
0: All right. Diana, can you stick around?
2: I sure can,
0: not sure. a- Excellent. Diana McMillan is a sleep expert, associate professor at the University of Manitoba. We love, love, love talking to Diana. Today is World Pancreatic Cancer Day, and although it is not one of the most commonly diagnosed cancers, pancreatic cancer is expected to be the third leading cause of cancer death
1: in 2021. Yeah, when you hear that terminology, pancreatic cancer, it is um, very tough to hear. It's a, it's really a tough one. Stephanie Condon Oldrief is the founder of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning. Thank you for taking some time with us today. Pancreatic cancer—it's not an overstatement. It's it's one of the it's one of the tough ones, isn't it?
5: It is. It's um, you know this year we had um, when we look at the statistics from um, the rate of diagnosis from last year to this year, it's increased by eleven point six seven percent, and uh, we hold many of the you know first place winner for. You know, we're, we have the highest fatality of all cancers. We have the lowest survival rate of all cancers. Um, it's the third leading cause of can, all cancer deaths in Canada, and we're on track to becoming the second leading cause of all cancer deaths by 2020. So we really even ha- we really haven't seen any changes since 1998 in, in terms of the mortality rate. Um, so it's a, it's a hard cancer uh, to treat. We haven't really made a lot of advancements, um, certainly in the past 15 years that I've been involved uh, with pancreatic cancer, and uh, you know, we're certainly uh, trying our hardest, uh, you know, to increase awareness uh, across Canada and really across the world. World Pancreatic Cancer Day, we have over 100 advocacy organizations working around the world. Um, you know, Australia kicked it off yes- yesterday, which, which was their day today, and uh, you know, it'll it'll run for almost 48 hours around the world.
2: The numbers you've referenced, uh, you know, they're startling and I just kind of want to repeat them here that the the, the pancreatic cancer incidents are going to increase 11.6% this year, but that the survival rate hasn't changed a lot, Stephanie, over the past 35 years. It's still at just 8% when it's pancreatic cancer. So clearly we need to be talking about this a lot more and maybe also more research going into this given that low survival rate.
5: Yeah, there's certainly, you know, when you look at the incidence of pancreatic cancer, it'll be around 6, it's pro- projected to be around 6,700 Canadians this year. So we're dealing with a smaller population. And when that small population, you only have 8% or 10%, there was statistics report that this year, um, we really don't have all those voices that you hear from other cancers and other survivors of cancers. So we have a small population in a, in a, in a very, very small group of survivors that are pounding on doors saying, "You know, look at us." Um, we're also seeing a, a huge trend in um, the amount of people that aren't being treated when they're diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. So, a big portion of our population um, has is diagnosed when it's metastatic, and we see numbers anywhere between 45 up to 60 percent of metastatic pancreatic cancer patients aren't even receiving. Treatment treatment uh, for their cancers. You know, um, so we're still fighting at the stigma of, you know, pancreatic cancer being the death sentence. But yet we know that there's, we know that pancreatic cancer patients who are in treatment have a better quality of life and they and they live longer, just as much as we know that, you know, when people are in clinical trials, they have a better quality of life and they live longer as well. So, you know, we're certainly, um, you know, we have some hills and mountains to to climb and uh, you know but we're climbing them and uh, in the 15 years I've been involved in you know, 15 years ago there was very little research and now um, there's so much happening you know in Canada um, we've got great minds, great clinicians, great researchers out there they just need the funding to support their research and to start making changes
0: Stephanie you're with Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society how did Craig's Cause get started?
5: So Craig was my god. And um he was diagnosed in two thousand and six. He was athletic, didn't drink, did smoke, you know, um, you know, cycled, you know, all over. And uh he was, when he was diagnosed, um they they um thought he, they'd caught it at an early stage and he was one of the very few. We have about, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of patients that can receive the whipple procedure, which is the only chance of a cure. And uh, he had the Whipple procedure, but he passed away from the complications from the surgery. It's a a pretty, it's a life-altering surgery, and uh, unfortunately, he was in that, you know, five percent or less that have complications from the surgery. And uh, so, from diagnosis to death, it was eight weeks. And uh, when he was diagnosed back then, um, it had just been, um, it was, you know, in a close proximity of the time when michael landon had died of pancreatic cancer i remember dad had said to me he drove into my driveway and said you know i was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and uh, i i remember thinking you know my god like you know michael landon had this and lasted i think it was three months i remember thinking you know he had the world at his fingertips in terms of money and and support and help out there and and, he had a very short diagnosis as well so i knew You know, even without knowing about pancreatic cancer, I knew that we were, you know, in for a, you know, a difficult journey.
1: There's a conference happening starting tomorrow. And thank you for sharing that, those memories of of Craig, your dad, Stephanie. We appreciate it. Just tell us... um we're running out of time, unfortunately. Just about the this Canadian Association for General Surgeons and Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society. This uh, Canada's first accredited national pancreas conference. What, what's happening?
5: We're so excited! Um, yeah, it'll be Canada's first. It's accredited by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and uh, uh, the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, and us. We co-developed. Uh, this National Pancreas Conference. So we have um, really, you know, we have every province involved. We have social workers to uh, surgeons, to medical oncologists, to general practitioners, to geneticists, to pathologists, um, you know, and so many more other disciplines in the healthcare industry. We're bringing everybody together virtually, of course. Um, So we're expecting up to 200 in the... That will be participating, registering. We have Sick Boy podcasts that will be opening up and hopefully, you know, giving uh, you know, the healthcare professionals an opportunity just to laugh and, um, you know, just to brief a little bit uh, before we enter into some um, challenging topics. And you know, on Saturday and Sunday, we have world renowned researchers that are speaking about many of the hot topics. Um, in the world of pancreatic cancer, um, from diagnosis to treatment to management to clinical trials. Um, we have Dr. Daniel Renouf, who uh, runs a huge clinical trial um, called EPIC out in, in BC. We have uh, Dr. Uh, Dominguez Luna from Spain, who will be talking about attrition and pancreatic enzymes. Um, you know, we have uh, physicians presenting about um, best patient outcomes across canada what they see work and we have dr marcus noel um, from the state he's studied um just the disparities in healthcare, you know and in populations of people that were missing and, and you know how can we do better so uh we really have every topic um that's important to pancreatic cancer right now covered and uh and a wealth of um professionals from across canada attending so we're very
0: excited. Stephanie Condon-Oldrieve, the founder of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society, joining us for World Pancreatic Cancer Day. Thank you very much. We appreciate this, Stephanie.
5: Thanks a lot for the opportunity to talk with all of you.
0: Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Smackdown tickets, Friday night Smackdown, WWE coming to Winnipeg January 21st. We're asking you about never again moments and like whether it's an experience or a place where you, something happens and you go, never no, that's that's it. Never again. And GMAC, uh, this first one. I know you're, you know, you own properties. This f- person trying to get themselves some property. Yeah, when I
1: went to buy a house for the first time, one bank, the blue one, basically <laughs> laughed at me. I told, is that okay that I did that? I think so. Okay, good. I told the real estate agent to stop looking. I couldn't afford it. She put me on to a friend of hers that was the regional mortgage manager for another bank. The green one had a mortgage. Ten minutes after I met him, needless to say, I've been a customer of the second bank ever since.
0: Okay, mm. so there's that. And Liz Lorenz got uh, had an issue with some heights.
2: Now, Liz, I don't know Liz, but this sounds like a friend of mine. Liz says, I will never again go on a huge Ferris wheel because I hate heights. And friends talked me into going on it. And when we got to the top, it stopped moving. And we were stuck up there for about 20 minutes, which seemed like 20 hours. Nope, not going to do it. I uh, convinced a friend to go on one once with our kids. And we get on it, and there's like no real seatbelts or anything. And the kids are, you know, two, three, and four at the time. And you're just (laughs) hanging on to them as they look over the edge, waving at everybody. And it was just, I was like, okay, you might be right. This is a bad idea.
0: (laughs) And Steve is our winner. He says, good slash bad morning. I (laughs) suffered seniors abuse at one of our big box grocery stores. I'd come to the express checkout limit, 15 items. I had six items, which included a dozen eggs. At my turn, the smart-alecky clerk informed me that I was over the limit as my eggs counted as 12 items. And besides, she informed me, this was an express lane and I was probably too slow for it. But, and and he went on to say, I think she was just funning me, but I'm stubborn. And she took me as a line was firming. I, of course, slowed right down and... My age. I smiled at everyone and called everyone dearie and I paid by cash and got the clerk to help me sort out the nickels and the quarters from my change purse. Sweet revenge. And I have not shopped with that grocery chain since April. Steve, your bitterness made us all laugh. Congratulations. We love it. You're going to Smackdown.
1: He's throwing the Smackdown in that text. Might as well translate it into a visit to Canada Life Centre.
0: This is a first-of-its-kind clinical trial that is underway in the United States examining the effectiveness of a nasal vaccine for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease
2: really fascinating stuff going on in the study which is going to be conducted through Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Well, they began recruiting participants this week and this is the first human trial of a nasal vaccine for Alzheimer's. Dr. Howard Weiner is co-director for the Anne Romney Center for Neurologic Disease at the hospital.
9: It's a whole new conceptual approach for treating Alzheimer's where we stimulate the body's immune system to attack the disease in the brain. We've developed this over almost 20 years. And the fact that we're now finally putting it into people, and we hope to dose people uh, next month is very exciting, because it stimulates the body's immune system, the white blood cells, to fight off the disease. You could think about it with COVID. uh, You know, we get vaccines against things, and the immune system goes and fights against a virus. So here, the immune system is being stimulated and it fights against the disease. The disease is caused by abnormal proteins in the brain and this clears them out. So uh, it clears out the abnormalities in the brain in someone with Alzheimer's. So the vaccine will test
1: an immunotherapy drug called protolin, which works by stimulating the body's immune system, targeting a buildup of beta amyloid protein plaques in the brain. Scientists believe these build-ups are one of the ways human brain cells are prevented from working properly in Alzheimer's patients. Dr. Benedict Albenzi, researcher at Albrechtson Research Centre here at the St. Bonaventure Hospital, has a long list of credentials associated with the study of dementia and the brain, including as the Everett Endowment Fund Chair for Alzheimer's Research and a good friend of this program. He had this reaction to the announcement
10: amyloid beta is a sticky, toxic protein. We know that it's associated with Alzheimer's, but the controversy that exists is whether or not it's a causative agent. And that's the catch, because there are so many examples of, of people with a head full of amyloid beta, and they don't get Alzheimer's disease. Now, that's a problem. That's a problem with understanding all these mechanisms, and that's an, a problem with trying to develop a drug. So we still have that in the background here. You, so these vaccines are in some way trying to interact and clear or or stimulate the immune system to uh, target a beta.
2: Okay so we know that the press release that the hospital news release the phase one trial is going to involve 16 percent participants they'll be between the ages of 60 and 85 and they already have early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease but are otherwise in good health and so Through this study, they each will receive two doses of protolin, one week apart. Uh, From what we understand through the researchers we've spoken to, this has been found to be safe in other vaccines, protolin. And Weiner told the Boston Herald that his pretrial research showed that a nasally administered dose provides the best results and didn't reveal any other side effects. Here's Dr. Weiner.
9: It can prevent it in people who don't have Alzheimer's yet, but we're starting it in people who do have Alzheimer's, have mild Alzheimer's, And we think it could be both a treatment for people who have Alzheimer's and ultimately as a prevention. And the FDA was very excited about this, gave us approval to treat people with Alzheimer's, so we're very uh, hopeful. We're hoping that a doctor can can, uh, prescribe it in five years' time, both for people that have Alzheimer's or begin uh, as a prevention. It takes about a year to do dosing, a year to do a bigger study, two or three years for FDA approval, So optimistically, five years, you know, things can take longer than that. But that's what we're shooting for.
1: So this vaccine is not around the corner for you, me or our loved ones, Brett and Lorraine. That's where my trepidation lies when sharing these hopeful, encouraging stories. So that's why I reached out to Dr. Albenzi. I know many of us are looking for answers around dementia, around Alzheimer's, for a solution to this global health crisis. Well, Dr. Weiner is hopeful, Dr. Albenzi is very pragmatic when it comes to these types of announcements.
10: Okay, maybe there's going to be some benefit for some people. But across the board, I just don't see it as being an effective treatment that's going to solve the problem and and it's going to get rid of Alzheimer's disease for the world. I just don't see it happening. And you know, the other thing that comes into play here and that we've talked about on your show before is that Alzheimer's I think is a bit like cancer. We should view it like cancer. There's lots of forms of cancers and there's also different forms of Alzheimer's. But oftentimes when we talk about Alzheimer's, we lump it all together and I don't think we should be.
1: So there's Dr. Obenzi reminding us that there are different types of Alzheimer's disease. It's important that we remember Alzheimer's itself is just one form of dementia. And according to the Alzheimer's Association of Canada, 44 million people worldwide and over 747,000 Canadians are living with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. And when you calculate the loved ones, friends, family, who are directly impacted by every single case, diagnosed or not, The number of Canadians affected by Alzheimer's is in the millions.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show. Tell us what you think.